Welcome to Forging the Norsatch, a podcast for entrepreneurs, startups, small business owners, and the supporters of the Northern Utah entrepreneurial ecosystem, presenting an interesting topic of the day and an enlightening interview with a new company or organization that supports business in the Norsatch, presented by the Economic Development Office of Weber State University. Welcome to Forging the Norsatch. This is Guy Latender, episode 19, May 2021. My co-host today will be Angie Osgathorpe of the Davis Chamber of Commerce. And joining Angie and I for our organization of this episode will be Director Dan Hemmert of Utah's Governor's Office of Economic Development, soon to be Go Utah. However, before we hear from Director Hemmert, we'll learn about balance sheets with Dr. Matt Morrison, the Dean of the Goddard School of Business and Economics. Couple of upcoming events a lot of you should be aware of and excited maybe to go participate in. The first is the Women in Business Athena Award for the Davis Chamber of Commerce. This year's award will be given to a number of women uh, associated with the healthcare industry, healthcare heroes. Uh, and this will be a virtual event Thursday, May 13th from 1130 to one. And uh, although it's virtual, your presence there is very impactful and meaningful to those, those women that, that sacrificed so much during COVID to make our lives much better. So go to the Davis Chamber of Commerce website, click on their events page and look for May 13th and you'll see that event. And in the same spirit, the Ogden Chamber of Commerce's Athena Award will be celebrated on May 18th at the Timber Mine Restaurant in Ogden at 1130 for lunch. And the award winner this year, Daniel Croyle, uh, someone who's provided a great lifetime of service to our community. And I look forward for you guys to go to the Ogden Weber Chamber of Commerce website and look on their events calendar for May 18th for their Athena Award. So now let's get at it. Let's go meet Matt Moritzson and learn about balance sheets. Today, we're going to visit with uh, Dr. Moritzson of Weber State University to talk about balance sheets. Uh, Dr. Moritzson is the current dean of the Goddard School of Business and Economics at Weber State University. He received his Bachelor of Arts degree in accounting from Weber State University and an MBA and PhD in business information systems and education from Utah State University which is a great combination for us here at the school because our business school includes information systems, a great program here for that. Prior to his appointment in higher education, he was a technology manager overseeing asset management, business continuity, and information security functions at a regional bank. Welcome aboard, Dr. Morrison. How are you today? I'm doing quite well. Thanks, Guy. It's, it's sunny and nice outside. That introduction reminded me of when I first got involved in, in accounting came alive, managing the assets for a bank. That was no small, no small task. I can imagine all types of assets being going through their loans, right? Yeah, yeah, very much so. My job specifically was managing technology assets. And uh, in that bank, the bank I worked for, Anything that was valued at over $500 made it to the balance sheet. And when that bank was taken over by a national bank, they had a completely different threshold for putting something on the balance sheet that was technology related. That amount was $5,000, which meant laptops, desktops, PCs, servers, those weren't going to make it to the balance sheet. They'd go right to the income statement, be expensed. It was a really interesting living case for me. 
uh, must have made, made your life easier when you had, didn't have to track people's phones anymore. That's true, but they still drive an awful lot of costs that you can see <laughs> elsewhere in the organization. Yeah, in the old days, yeah, when people in the minute cost, right? Every time you used the phone, you had to pay by the minute. So today we're going to talk about balance sheets. So what's a balance sheet? Well, it's a financial statement that's incredibly valuable, often called the financial statement of financial position. And it's different from the other financial statements because it's a snapshot in time. It often says at the top, as of December 31st, uh, by comparison to the other financial statements like the income statement or cash flow statement that are for a period of time, much like a scoreboard at a sporting event. That's amazing. So what, what are the areas or the sections on a balance? Yeah, the big three. And every transaction in an organization can be traced back to these three. It's the assets and the claims to those assets by owners. We call those liabilities or creditors. We call those liabilities. And then the owners, and we call that equity, either st stockholder equity or owner's equity. So what are the types of assets then that people see? I think one of them we see is cash, but are there other assets that may or may not make a balance sheet for some whatever reason? Yeah, you have a couple of big categories. You've got those that are current or short-term and the others that are long-term, non-current, uh, buildings, equipment, things that'll last multiple periods. And that leads us to a conversation at some point about depreciation. But for an entrepreneur, those current assets are extremely important. Cash is king as always, as we've talked about in the past, but the other current assets of receivables and inventory are also important. And, and I think it's important for an entrepreneur to think about when they're going to get their cash back, when they spend it, and at what point do they start investing in long-term assets? Because there may be other decisions that make better use of their cash. Let's say it's an entrepreneur that wants to start an app. They've got a great idea for an application. Should they build and invest in a data center? Or if they, should they just rent space and capacity from Amazon Web Services? And I think the business case is pretty clear uh, in terms of utilizing your cash. So when, when a small business looks at their balance sheet, you know, they, they see certain things on there. But if I'm a small business, where's the first place I should look uh, on the balance sheet? Well, you, you go with your cash. And if you've got a product, you look to see how quickly that product that you're buying, we call it inventory, is going to come back to you. And that is really key. How long does it take for your cash to buy inventory, get to you, get sold, and then customers actually give you your cash back? That cycle is so key. And, and I think you, you can answer that question with the balance sheet, but you also need a little help from other financial statements like cost of goods sold on the income statement. So there's a term I think you were discussing earlier called inventory turns. How does that relate to this conversation? Yeah, this is exactly what we're talking about. And it's so important for an entrepreneur with, with inventory and tight cash to understand how long it takes to get the product back. So I'm going to give you an example. Let's just take uh, a company has generated, they've purchased inventory, it's on the balance sheet. It keeps getting replaced. And on average, during the year, they have $10,000 in inventory. Well, when inventory sells to a customer, it becomes cost of goods sold. It's removed from the balance sheet and becomes cost of goods sold on the income statement. If you just simply divide cost of goods sold, and let's in this example say it's $100,000, 
you divide $100,000 by average inventory of 10,000, you get a number of 10. That means your inventory turned over 10 times. Well, how many, if you take that 10, that number 10 and divide it into 365 days, you get a figure of 36.5 days that your inventory turned. Well, for the entrepreneur selling uh, fresh produce, I'm not sure 36 and a half days is a good number. You want that more like three days. But if you're selling cars, perhaps 36 days is exactly what you want it to be. Maybe it's leading the industry, but that's a figure that you, you'd want to try to improve. And the, the faster you turn the turnover, the inventory over, the faster you get your cash back. And I think from a business perspective, if you're set, if your overhead and some of your other costs are fixed per a time period, if you sell two cars in a month versus 10 cars in a month, you make considerably more profit because your fixed costs are divided by 10 instead of two. I think you described the cash to cash cycle, right? How fast can you go from a asset of cash to buy inventory to when it comes back to cash again? Yeah, I think there's one step in there we should explore. And that's what happens if you have, you're selling your product on account to your customers and it's now has to stop by receivables. How quickly can you get it, get your customers to respond to your invoices and actually pay their bills? And that leads to another account receivable turnover calculation that we could we could look at. So what do entrepreneurs do? They're, they say, I don't want to deal with receivables. So I'll, I'll accept credit card payments. And you turn over the collection to a credit card company, you get your cash immediately, though discounted by the fee that the credit card company charges you but that may be less than what it would cost you to track receivables and the timing of, of your cash coming in slowly. And as an entrepreneur, that's something that I did as well to pay my suppliers as late as possible to keep my cash uh, as long as possible. My suppliers didn't like that, but you had to take them to lunch once in a while and smooth that over. Well, Dr. Morrison, this has been incredibly helpful for us today. Thank you so much for joining us. You are welcome. I'm, I'm happy to join you anytime, Guy. I hope so. I hope so again. And for you listeners out there, go to Weber State Goddard School of Business and Economics. And we got great programs in accounting and tax accounting, nationally ranked programs, and they're excellent programs. And now we're going to meet uh, with Dan Hammert, the director of GOED, the Governor's Office of Economic Development. Angie, as promised, we get Dan Hemmert, Executive Director of Go Utah with us today. It's going to be a great episode. Dan's a new favorite friend of mine, and so he's got lots of good things to say. Looking forward to it. Yeah, it's always good to have a friend with Go Utah, that's for sure. So Dan Hemmert serves as the Executive Director of the Utah Governor's Office of Economic Opportunity, Go Utah, which is replacing the Governor's Office of Economic Development, which was there before. In addition to being Senate Majority Whip, he's been a C-level executive at a successful venture-backed startup, a private equity investment professional, and manage a private asset management firm. However, most recently, Hemmert owned and operated the largest dry cleaning business in Utah, Red Hanger, which uh, I'm a fan of as well, with over 20 locations and 150 employees. He has a BS in economics, an MBA, and a law degree, all from Brigham Young University. Dan and his wife, Natalie, are proud parents of six children. 
and enjoys outdoor activities such as hiking, mountain biking, and skiing. Welcome aboard, Dan. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Yeah, it's going to be. Well, we're excited to have you. I think we're going to learn a lot. Um, so, so, Dan, one of the first things we ask our guests is where do they get their favorite taco? Uh, so my favorite taco is probably not that exciting for people. It's a little uh, family-owned restaurant near my house, the mouth of Provo Canyon, called Mama Chews. Uh, mm -hmm. They have an excellent taco, and uh, that's 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 the go-to place uh, for me. Mama Chews. Okay, we'll write that down. That's excellent. Well, thank you. That that sounds like a destination, Mama Chews. I've heard of that before, so I'm going to try it out. <laughs> they, they, hey, do, Dan. they do a good job. They do a good job. Good, good. First of all, go Cougars. I got my MBA there too. So we'll, we'll bleed that kind of blue. How about? <laughs> hey, and along with that, well, you know, we, we understand that you were born in San Francisco, but that you really you're a true Utah. Is that right? Absolutely. I may have been born there, but we moved here. My family moved here when I was two years old and, and I uh, have lived here my entire life. And, and so, you know, I moved out a couple of times for work, but always came back. And I like to think I'm as local yokel as they come. Very good. Very good. Okay. Now uh, an MBA and a law degree, that's impressive together. So <laughs> having just got half of that. So, but after that, you went into a venture capitalist space. Yeah. So um, I came out of my undergrad degree and uh, did, cause the, the cool thing to do at the time was to do investment banking. So I came out and did uh, investment banking type work. And then I went back and got a grad degree. And then by the time I, I exited there, the cool thing to do was private equity and venture capital. So I went to a large uh, alternative asset management firm, but that did both venture capital and leveraged buyouts in Europe. And so went and moved to, took my family and we moved to Switzerland and, and then uh, did that before coming back and, and working at a law firm in Washington, D.C., still doing private financings, venture capital, but on the legal side instead of the financial side. That's amazing. And then you worked in a venture capital, a, a startup company. So uh, that's not all. Uh, it's not all fun and games in a VC startup, is it? As they show on TV. It was a wild ride. So this was right after we moved back to Utah. Um, there was this is pre Silicon Slopes. Um, there was a, a startup company in American Fork. I came on as the CFO and chief legal, so chief financial and chief legal officer. And it was a wild ride when I got there. Um, we had uh, no cash. We were burning cash like crazy. And this was right in the middle of the Great Recession. And so uh, within my first week, I remember the, the controller who came up to me and he said, hey, we don't have enough cash for payroll. And we basically were pulling rabbits out of the hat every two weeks to keep our, our people employed to restructure that business uh, to survive um, what was kind of a, a, a little bit of a downturn during the Great Recession, and then at the same time to raise a, another round of financing. And, and we navigated all that, but every day was an adventure. Yeah, nothing like about them is payroll to create urgency, um, not only with the people working there, but the, the management team. That's like the worst thing, worst feeling there is, is to not make payroll or not almost make payroll. Well, there, there were a few times, Guy, when the management team had to take their pay. We cut our pay, number one, but number two, we took our pay in the form of physical checks so we could delay the deposit of those uh, as we hopefully had cash. And, and I don't know, I had kind of a reputation for being one, a straight shooter and not mincing words. And unfortunately, 
uh, that carried with it a, a little bit of a negative reputation where, where some of the CEO and the president called me the harbinger of doom. But we did get through that process and the company was ultimately successful and uh, sold uh, to, to a large organization. So it worked out great for everyone. I'm sure that experience is one of the most valuable things in your life, uh, especially in your role now as uh, you know the leader of our economic development. To, to know that how much passion and support companies like that need, but some of it kind of they need to do on their own. So after the startup, what was next? Um, so I actually went uh, back into asset management. This was a different type role though. It was the chief financial officer for what's called a family office. So an investment firm that invests the assets of a, of a single family. And, you know, it was interesting. We, while I was there, we launched a private real estate fund and raised third-party capital for that, and then also launched a private equity fund uh, and raised third-party capital outside of the family office for that. And then I became the managing director in addition to my other duties as running the entire office, uh, managing director of that private equity fund. And while I was there, also had the opportunity to get involved in some campaigns and always kind of had a passion for politics. And it was actually, uh, while I was there, I'd made a five-year commitment at the start and as that five-year commitment approached, I decided I wanted to leave the family office, among other reasons, to run for office myself, uh, to run for political office. You know, I was very involved in the Romney 2012 presidential campaign and just thought, you know, that would be kind of neat to run for office and, and see how that goes. And so, so left uh, that office and ran for office. So that's an amazing experience and a lot of different adventures in that. But then along with that, in parallel, you became an entrepreneur yourself. Well, I needed a job, <laughs> one, and and two, uh, needed a job that let me run for office. And, and my aspiration for office, to be clear, was the state legislature, which is a part-time, Utah State Legislature, which is a part-time office. And so I needed to create a work environment for myself to let me do that. And so a uh, partner and I bought a small business, a uh, dry cleaning business called Red Hanger Cleaners. And, and yeah, so we ran that, we grew that. And within the first year of me leaving the family office, um, there was an open seat in the state Senate. And so uh, I ran for that seat and was fortunate enough to have uh, to win that seat. Uh, and tell us about your, your time there. I know that you uh, had something to do with being the, the youngest well, so when I got in, yeah, I, I was the youngest member of the, the, the Senate. And then um, I, while I was there, I decided, hey, I want to go get in leadership. Um, that's where, that's the group that really spends the money. Uh, they manage the budget process. And that's, you know, my background was more finance. And that was pretty interesting to me. And the policy stuff's important and meaningful, but I was really much more interested in the budgetary side of being an elected uh, official. And so um, as a freshman, uh, two-year freshman in the Senate, I ran for the office of WIP and was fortunate enough to get elected. And I, as far as I know, I'm the youngest ever in both age and tenure in the body uh, to be elected as WIP uh, in the Senate. So that was a pretty, pretty neat experience. Uh, Pretty neat experience. And then as whip, you're you're you know the, the 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 word whip comes from you're supposed to whip the troops into you know into mm -hmm. in shape uh, or, or whip up the votes. Um, but it, it was really a, a neat experience to see behind behind the curtain how the legislature works. Uh, 
which was an opportunity that not even every member of the, of the bodies get to see. Uh, being in leadership is quite different. It was a really neat opportunity. And I think the, the, the collaboration then, so when COVID started and your role there, that must have been amazing, not only to kind of step out of the legislature and, and start interacting with all these other entities in the state. How'd you do that? How did you, what did you learn from that? How did, how did you do that? Well, so when COVID hit in the the end of the 2020 uh, legislative session, I still remember when Herbert made the announcement, hey, we're going to strict gatherings toward the very end of that session. So a couple of things going on. One, our business, we saw an immediate, we saw, we, in three weeks, we dropped 80% of our revenue, which was devastating. On the flip side, all of a sudden, it became clear that we needed to make budget cuts at the state level, at the legislature, and, and two, uh, also, as a legislature, we felt like we needed to create a mechanism that brought industry, uh, executive branch, and legislative branch together and formed what was called the Public Health and Economic Emergency Commission. And we did this because, now we did this in April. So remember, the emergency started in March, and so we were about a month into this, and we felt like a hundred percent of the decisions were being made around public health, which is important and, and key and the most important thing. But we also felt like we were missing the balance of, of the economic impact of the decision we were making in that process. And so we created the Public Health and Economic Emergency Commission, and I, I chaired that. And our purpose was to encourage then Governor Herbert, A, not to shut down the economy, and B, put in place a process to get the economy back open as we were seeing positive movement on the public health side and make sure that was happening in conjunction one with the other. And so we created the initial, now confusing, but at the time novel, uh, red, orange, yellow, green color code system. Then we moved to the high, medium, low. And being right in the middle of that, um, for me, was it was it was neat. It was you're in the middle of it. You're meeting with folks from the hospitals, from the um, from the Department of Health, from from business, and just trying to balance all this, the public health with the livelihood impact on livelihoods. And I think we did a pretty good job of threading the needle. Uh, you know, the state emerged, um, and, and back in uh, last month, you know, U.S. News World Report came out and, and named us as the number one economy in the country. Um, other metrics were doing great and and being part of that and being in the middle of that was pretty meaningful uh, through the 2020 period and, and led up to me saying, hey, I want to continue being part of a recovery, uh, part of a transition of a post-COVID transition, which led me to uh, get where I am today and, 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 and be part running, I guess, the governor's office of economic opportunity. Dan, great, great job earlier. Um, you know, the economic part was so important, but I'm sure you uh, grew some thick skin during that process as well. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, one, as a, as a small business owner where you're trying to figure out if you're going bankrupt, uh, that gets you get pretty thick skin there. And then two, yeah, uh, being in the middle of, you know, you, you, everyone's mad at you on both sides. From, from the right, you're you're being tyrannical and why are you not, you know, uh, saying no masks and why, you know, this is the end of freedom as we know it. And then on the left side, you got people saying, you know, how are you letting anyone walk out of their front door? And so it's like, you're, you're navigating a, a, a space 
where everyone is mad at you all the time. And at some point you just have to decide like, you know what, I'm not going to listen to the voices. I'm going to list, I'm going to look at the data and make decisions based on data. And, and that's what we did in Utah. And, and because of that, I think we navigated the, the pandemic pretty well. Very good. You stick to your guns and do what you know in your heart is right, because you're right. Either either side's going to be, you know, upset a, a little bit. So so how exactly did you become the the director of Go Utah? Well, Governor Cox asked me. That's that's the that's the short answer. Um, you know, you'd have to ask him. I mean, there was a transition team, and and I know my name got on a list as someone, and 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 I guess. One thing that was happening around the same time, and this probably influenced my name getting on the list, uh, I was going to have to leave Red Hanger. Red Hanger got devastated by the pandemic. And I have a partner, and we were looking at cost cutting, and one of the costs cut were one of us. And uh, I, I actually uh, was looking for you know other employment opportunities, and it became clear to me that what I was going to probably end up doing was go back into finance and probably wasn't going to be able to stay in the legislature. And as, as part of that, I you know found out, I think that got back to transition team people that, that I was going to leave the legislature anyway. And I had run a number of bills dealing with the governor's office of economic development. I had um, kind of been part of various groups at the legislature working on economic development for Utah. And so, and I, and I had a good relationship with governor-elect Cox. And, um, I guess all that adds together to him uh, asking me to do this. You know, for all I know, I was the fifth person he asked and the only one who said yes. But um, it, it, you know, I'm excited to be here. So. Uh, so, so in addition to kind of some, maybe a, a new, obviously a new governor, a new director, uh, the legislator created uh, Economic Opportunity Commission. And, and how does that fit with this? And what does that do? So it's interesting, just today, we had a ceremonial bill signing by the governor where he signed that bill. He, he had already signed it, but did a ceremonial signing today. And it's, it's actually, it's an opportunity to do something we've needed to do, and frankly, govern, governments across the nation need to do, which is align all of the, of the organizations within state government that touch on economic, what traditionally economic development. And this is education, this is infrastructure, so UDOT, this is Division of Natural Resources and Outdoor Recreation and Public Education, uh, Department of Commerce, Department of Workforce Services, all of these entities touch on aspects of economic development, which includes workforce development and, and education. And, and so what this commission does is the governor chairs it and all these agencies sit around the table to make sure we're all going the same direction, that we have a single strategy that we're chasing, a single, a single vision, that we're not siloing, we're not creating redundant programs, but we're all going together and, and working on the same project and, and really aligning the force of government to get a uh, agreed upon outcome. And I'm pretty excited. I'm actually very excited about this. It's uh, for the first time, not, not, that, not that there's... Uh, competition between the agencies, but for the first time, there'll be forced uh, collaboration between these agencies to hopefully get better outcomes for Utahns. That's part of the name change too, going from development to opportunity in our name. When you say development, you think of buildings and impersonal projects. When you think of opportunity, you think of people. 
And our goal is to align all of government toward a single uh, mission to get better economic opportunities for all Utahns on Wasatch Front and off Wasatch Front. So Dan, what are some of the, the key specific priorities of Go Utah? So for us, I mean, right now, it, I mean, one is continuation of what GoEd used to do. So that's corporate recruitment, that's business services, um, that's uh, international trade and diplomacy, that's we run the um, Talent Ready Utah program. So that's workforce development. We do tourism, we do film commission and office of outdoor recreation. So that's kind of where we are now. Uh, that's going to continue, although I think you'll see some refocus toward more toward business services. So some of the most successful programs we have that people don't know as much about is like the procurement technical assistance program. It's a very, very complicated name that no one knows what it means, or at least I don't when I hear those words. All it means is if you want to sell into the federal government or into large government contractors, we'll help you do it. That's all it means. And it's a highly successful program. We want more programs like that. We want more matchmaking type programs where we're not going to tell you how to run your business. We shouldn't. You're going to figure that out. But if we can help you, let us help you. And where we can help you probably more than anywhere else is navigating bureaucracy. And so I think you'll see more business service type programs that help you as a business owner navigate proper, uh, uh, bureaucracy. Also, we're going to focus more on entrepreneurship. We would love, we want to be the startup state. Maybe we are the startup state. If we're not, we want to be the startup state. So how can we encourage entrepreneurship? Uh, you're going to see a lot more of that. Um, we're going to focus on uh, more match type programs. So, that, so one of the things we do where we help people navigate bureaucracy is like with a federal grant program. It's the Small Business Innovation Research Grant. We have a program to help you apply for and receive that grant if you're a startup. We were trying to put in place a matching program to even get you a little bit more support as you're starting your business. Um, so those types of entrepreneurship oriented and technical assistance oriented programs, you're going to see more of that out of our office. So Dan, I saw in the in the governor's 500 day plan, there was an area in economic development and some of the key points there as we're you know, our, our podcast is for entrepreneurs and small business owners. And there were some key elements there that, that you guys are focusing on uh, in your plan. Do you want to talk about at least two of those? Yeah, I think, well, one to talk about in particular are, um, we're focusing, one of the areas we're focusing is this uh, point in the mountain. Um, you're all familiar with the prison site. Uh, that's moving, the prison's moving out toward the airport in the Northwest Quadrant. And that becomes 600 acres that are available to the state of Utah right in the middle of the biotech industry in the state, you know, uh, Bio Utah, BioHive right there. And then you also have the Silicon Slopes innovation, you know, entrepreneur activity that's occurring right there. And we would like to develop that into an innovation hub. Um, let that be as one of the last large pieces of property in the area make sure we develop it well to service for decades to come and have it be a real innovation hub. And so that's one particular area we're focused on. Another one is working with our various entrepreneurship programs throughout our state. And these are include the business plan competitions and, and other areas where we are promoting entrepreneurship and working with our universities, which really are the incubators for entrepreneurship right now. Not to say there's a lot of startups that happen outside of the universities, but most of the high-tech innovation sector startups do come out of those universities. 
And we have some like business plan competitions now. We want to kind of sync those up even more, have a statewide business plan competition, um, provide resources to these entrepreneurs and, and really help promote what they're doing to help foster uh, success for Utah's economy. Again, we're, we're looking decades down the road. Dan, excellent. We know this is really a comprehensive um, you know, conglomerate. Uh, tell us about some more important elements that you feel that Go Utah has. So one thing we will be focusing on that I think you'll see a change when we talk about economic development. I think you're going to see, as opposed to um, a jobs, jobs, jobs focus, I think you're going to see a more holistic view toward economic development that's going to include quality of life as a very high factor. So we're going to talk about how does this, when we talk about business expansion, business recruitment, at least as far as we're concerned as an office, uh, how does this impact air quality? How does this impact housing affordability? How does this impact uh, transit, transportation? And, and how does it impact culture? And try to have a more holistic view toward economic development within the state. I think that's one big thing that you're going to see. We're also going to be focusing more and more and more on workforce development. We do not have a jobs shortage problem in the state of Utah. We have a shortage of workforce talent availability. And so what we're going to be looking at a lot is how do we expand that workforce pipeline? We're the youngest state in the nation. So the good news is we have 200,000 people in our post K through 12 post-secondary education system. So there's a lot of potential workers coming out and we want to make sure that they are trained to get the jobs available to them. And, and, and so aligning education with workforce needs, that's something that we, we want to be, we be part of and be partnering with businesses to make sure that happens. Also, we're just going to continue to ask, you know, how does growth affect culture? Uh, we have a culture here in Utah that we love and respect and, and we're part of it. You know, I grew up here. I still live here. I'm raising my kids here. I uh, want to make sure that we preserve that culture and don't unintentionally let growth, I guess, be the, the everything we're chasing all the time at the expense of values and culture that we have here in Utah that are also important. And so just, just a more holistic view to how we view the future. And, and, and you're going to see more of that. That's, that's really good news. And it's great to hear that the quality of life is the objective and some of these growth and retention and recruitment and onto these are strategies to maintain a positive quality of life and kind of not the other way around. Uh, Dan, you've been an entrepreneur, uh, a VC startup leader. You've been uh, a private equity uh, person. Now you're the director of our economic office. So a lot of our listeners are out there. They're entrepreneurs or small business owners. What kind of advice would you give these these people in the in the next for the next couple of years? The the number one piece of advice I would give is perseverance is what gets you through. Um, things usually weren't built in a day; they take time, and being willing to not pull the plug that may be the hardest part, and and work crazy hours, uh, but just keep going. Um, it, it, you get through it. If you're willing to go, I, I, the phrase I use is heads down, pencils up. And I actually stole this from one of my partners when I was at a PE firm, he would always say that we're a heads down, pencils up place and go heads down, pencils up and just work through it and persevere. And in my experience, things typically work out. Uh, even if it's not the way you want, they still work out. <laughs> um, 
Uh, and and that's that's the number one thing I think. Just persevere, stay at it. Well, that's thank you, and for that, and and thank you for your service to our state. Um, uh, it's amazing how well our state does in attracting talent like yourself uh, to be in these roles that that makes our state the number one economy in the nation. And we can say with pride, uh, we think Weber and Davis counties are the the best counties for economic development in the state. So we're maybe too prideful for that. But thank you for joining us, uh, Dan. We really appreciate your time today. Hey, thank you for having me. And Northern Utah, I'll, well, Davis, Weber County uh, are certainly economic powerhouses and they have a bright future too. So we hope so. Thank you, Dan. Thank you. And thank you, Angie, today for joining me. And Dr. Matt Morrison of the Goddard School of Business who visited with us on Balance Sheets. And always Cameron Jackson, Andrea Balthazar, and Studio 76 of Weber State University for putting our show on today. So thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the latest presentation of Forging the Norsatch. Please look for all future installments bi-weekly on Tuesdays on your preferred podcast provider.